listening to the Cougar Talk Podcast, hosted by Dylan McMinn and Chris Isaacson. Welcome back to another episode of the Cougar Talk Podcast. We are your weekly podcast talking all things BYU football and all things college football. I'm your host, Dylan, and joining me today, hosting with me today, is my good friend, Chris. Chris, how are you recovering from that disappointing loss last week? I'm still very sad, but we have a lot of football in front of us and looking to right the ship this week. We can turn it around. Absolutely, and I agree there. There is absolutely plenty of time to get things figured out, and we're going to go over that here in just a moment. But before we dive into today's episode, we want to give a huge shout out to today's sponsors. So this episode is sponsored by Josh underscore war on Twitter. He does custom Birchwood signs for any you know, team logo, any company logo, and they're super affordable and he always has free shipping. So make sure you check his workout. It's at Josh underscore war. That's W-A-R-R on Twitter. If you don't have Twitter, you can always shoot him a text 801-310-2625. Business inquiries only, but he does great work. Super high quality stuff for a very fair price. So make sure you go check him out. Now, we are also happy to be proud affiliates with KooConnect. KooConnect is the premier NIL company with BYU Athletics. When you subscribe to them, most of that money goes directly towards the athletes, and you get access to player-written reports, opportunities to meet the players, even some awesome KooConnect gear. So make sure you check them out. If you want to subscribe to KooConnect, make sure you go to our website, KooKooTalkPodcast.com. Go to the bottom button of our homepage and just click on the one that says subscribe to Coo Connect. From there, you'll be able to subscribe and they'll get you taken care of. So huge shout out to them. Now, this past week was a tough week for us BYU fans. We had that tough loss to Kansas, but it was also a good week for some BYU alumni in general. So let's talk a little bit about some of the Cougs in the pros. Yeah, just starting it off, we have Puka Nakua here who has been on an absolute tear to start off his rookie season. He had what could be considered an off night with five catches and 72 yards, which is still a great performance. But I just wanted to point out his season pace right now. He's on pace for 1,900 receiving yards and 170 receptions. To put that into perspective, the NFL rookie receiving uh, receptions record is at 107. So he would beat that by 63, and he would beat the NFL yards rookie record by about 500 yards. Obviously, this pace probably isn't as sustainable, but he is off to a hot start, and he's killing it for the Rams there. Yeah, it's especially, you know, hard to keep something like that sustained with his situation where they're going to have Cooper Cup coming back eventually this season. But I think it's been awesome to see that Matthew Stafford clearly trusts Puka as sort of his go-to guy. He's constantly looking for him. He knows Puka's going to get open for him. So even with Cooper Cup getting back, who knows? Maybe he'll still be one of those leading receivers for the Rams. Now, another guy that had a great week this past week was Chris Brooks. Chris Brooks is currently on the Miami Dolphins, and if you somehow missed this, the Dolphins beat the Broncos 70-20 to this past week, which is insane for any football game, especially the NFL. But in this game, Chris had nine carries for 66 yards with a long run of 52 yards. So he had himself a great game there. You know, he is, I think, third at best on this depth chart in the running back room. It's a very great running back room. So the fact that he was able to go in there 
take advantage of his opportunity was fantastic. So big shout out to Chris Brooks. He did awesome. Now, jumping back into this past week for BYU football, we played at Kansas and we lost 27 to 38. So just to kind of get it all out there to start here, let's just start off with what went wrong. Sometimes we start with what went right, but this was a pretty frustrating game. So let's talk about what went wrong here. Yeah, so to start, the most obvious thing is the two defensive touchdowns that we gave up. I know they were both of them were a little bit fluky. Parker Kingston just completely blindsided off of a missed block out of the backfield. Isaac Rex getting PI'd with a little bit on the on the pick six in the second half. But either way, those cannot happen. When you start out a game with the ball, you get a good stop, you get the ball, it starts to go down, and you immediately are down 7-0. It's not going to bode well for you. We were able to overcome it in the Arkansas game, but doing it twice against Kansas is never going to cut it there. And I think what's especially frustrating about some of these turnovers that we were seeing, at least with this last week with the turnovers, is they were on our first possessions on both the halves. So to start the game, that fumble return for a touchdown after the hard hit on Parker, whether it's a targeting or not, it's still such a hard hit, he's fumbling it. Even if it's not targeting, he's going to fumble that ball. And that was, you know, our second play of the day. To start the second half, we had that pick six that we threw. And not only is it, you know, very difficult to win a game when you are having those turnovers, when you're allowing that defense to score on you like that, but it's also extremely frustrating when that's coming right at the start of a half and the start of a game. You know, it's kind of been a recurring issue these past couple weeks that we're having these slow starts at each half. We're coming out like we are not entirely ready. We don't have that intensity, which, you know, is, should be the opposite. You want to go into these games or these halves with that intensity and be the first one to make that play and leave your mark on this game. Now, another thing that I think stands out a lot to what went wrong with this game as well is our rushing offense. And I know this is something that is rehashed over and over again this season, but I think it's, you know, kind of deserves to be called out a little bit. I mean, on the day last week, we had nine total rushing yards. LJ Martin was our leading rusher with 28 yards, but then we had Parker Kingston with losing 11 yards on that hard hit and Keaton with sacks combined lost. He had negative 24 yards on the day as well. So all of that combined, we had only nine total accumulative rushing yards on the day. And that also is going to lead to a lot of losses. You, you cannot win games if you're not getting even double digits in rushing yards. So that really stood out to me as to what went wrong. And then just, you know, overall, just kind of dumb mistakes or things that we kind of just shot ourselves in the foot. Outside of those turnovers, we also had another illegal touching penalty. Penalty. There's got to be some better communication to make sure everyone is lined up there. And where it's happening, you know, four weeks in a row now, there's got to be some change there where maybe we change up the formation that we use with those plays. Maybe we scrap that formation. I don't know. But having it happen that many games in a row is kind of crazy to me. And then also just little penalties like that substitution infraction when we were in the red zone. We had timeouts wasted even. I felt like it was wasted at least where, you know, it was in the third quarter. We used two timeouts 
And we'll go over one of them actually towards the end of this. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But one of those timeouts specifically kind of killed me watching this game because we came out of like a two-minute commercial break. We went to line up and we had to use a timeout because we just weren't ready to go still. And, you know, there were eight minutes left in the quarter and there was that long break for the commercial and we still weren't ready to go and had to waste a timeout there. So, you know, little things like that, that really we just need to be more aligned on, get, you know, a better rhythm going because losing that timeout really hurt us towards the end of the game in the fourth quarter. So those are kind of just major things that really stood out to me of what really went wrong in that game. Yeah, and talking about that timeout there, it was kind of funny watching the game live. I was on the commercial and I looked away for a few seconds and the commercial had kept going. So I was in the middle of like a five minute commercial. I was super confused on what happened until I got a text in the group chat talking about the timeout. Went back a little bit and I realized in between that there was a play and we had to call a timeout before getting a play. They started a whole new commercial and it was just it was kind of embarrassing, honestly. We should be ready out of a timeout and stuff like that as of week four should be gone. And then also going back to the running game, you mentioned the nine yards that we had. There, the Parker Kingston negative 11 yards on the fumble and the Keaton Slovis sack stats, they are a little bit misleading. If you take those out, we did get 2.25 yards per carry. However, that is still not very good. In terms of the NCAA, BYU is actually 127th in terms of rushing offense, which surprisingly Colorado is below us, but that's not great to be down at 127 out of 130 in the country. And it's been an issue all year long. We've known about it all year long, but this rushing offense needs to be better if we want to have a chance in any of these games. Now, instead of just focusing constantly on the negative, though, we always like to call out the positive as well. So let's sort of shift focus here and sort of talk about what went right for our for our team. So Chris, I'll have you kick us off with this as well. What do you think, you know, went right for us? What stood out to you the most? Yeah. So the first thing that stood out the most was the passing game. Keaton Slovis went 30 for 51, had 357 yards, two touchdowns, two picks. The two interceptions were a little bit rough, but when he's throwing the ball 51 times and the entire offense is on his back, things like that are going to happen. But in general, I loved in the first half, the first couple touchdown drives, we were using Isaac Rex a ton. He was getting open, big fourth down situations. He was making catches, things like that. And then once they started to cover him, the other receivers got something there too. So I did love the passing attack there. And Keaton Slovis was on one for the most part. Absolutely. And I want to point out something that you just mentioned here, because I think it's something that is overlooked by a lot of fans. I feel like I've seen quite a few people on social media kind of, you know, go after Keaton for having those two interceptions and not, you know, having a perfect game. But I think it's got to be realized that if we have no rushing offense and nothing is working in our run game, of course, we're going to need to pass it a lot. And when we're passing it so many times, it's going to be hard to have an efficient game. It's going to be hard to have a great completion percentage I mean, he was 30 for 51, so 30 completions is a good game. He was over 350 passing yards. That's a great stat line. It's just those two interceptions which are bound to happen when we're scrambling, we're feeling a lot of urgency because we're playing from behind. Turnovers are bound to happen. So I absolutely agree there. Keaton played great, and I don't think he is at all the reason that our offense is struggling here. I think he's actually really showing us 
why we should be hyped that we got him in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. Keaton Slovis, of all people, is not to blame here. He has been one of the bright spots on this offense. That has been a little slow at times, but he has been able to come out and perform. And then I also wanted to give a shout-out to the first-half defense. So the the score going into halftime was 17-14, to but only seven of those points came from the defense, and it was on a drive with an interception that got overturned. It was a penalty for holding, but they did throw an interception, did end up scoring a touchdown on that same drive. The first half defense was incredible. They set the tone. They really kept us in the game, and they gave us a shot, at least going into the second half up until the turnover and until Kansas switched up their offense. So I did want to shout out that first half defense there. Yeah, and you know what's what's interesting to think about too is you know, without those turnovers, those, you know, allowing Kansas's defense to score, their offense scored 24 points. And, you know, looking at the final score, we scored 27. So if we don't have those turnovers, those defensive touchdowns for Kansas, I mean, you know, of course things would go differently and this isn't for sure, but score standing wise, you know, we would be up 27 to 24 rather than losing 38 to 27. And so I, I absolutely agree there. I think, of course, it's going to be hard to keep our guys healthy when it feels like they're on the field a lot or when we have those turnovers happening, we're putting the defense in bad spots. So I, I think, you know, the defense, even after the first half, deserves that shout-out because they played great before those injuries were happening. And then, of course, even after the injuries, you know, we were playing from behind. We were playing with just so much urgency and very frantic so then mistakes start happening, assignments get missed, and that's going to happen. So, you know, I don't think the defense is to blame here either. I don't think it's only on the offense for this loss, but I do think that defense really showed why we should be trusting in them. And I did want to point out something about the defense. You were talking about how if the defensive touchdowns kind of go the other way, the game could change. One thing I noticed is that once Kansas went up 21 to 17 there, we ended up going down kicking a field goal, but they had the lead and they immediately came out and started running the triple option with, with Jaden Daniels and BYU could not stop it. We couldn't stay in our lanes. We couldn't keep contained. And they always had that free rusher that was able to get around the edge, get around the defense and be able to play like that. And so you have to wonder if Kansas is behind say two scores, 10, 14 points, something like that, would they have the freedom to run that triple option that ended up gashing our defense? Because in the second half, they ended up having three drives, two of which were touchdowns and one was a field goal that ended up putting the game on ice. But they might not have been able to exploit that and be able to run that the second half if that offense and if that the defensive touchdowns were different there. So this game could have gone a lot of different ways. It's unfortunate that it went the way that it did, but we at least learned something about the defense that they need to get a little bit better in that run game and all the kind of misdirection, they need to be able to play assignment sound football here in the future. And, you know, it's great to have learning experiences like this, especially where there are parts of the game where we do well so we can, you know, focus on what we did good and focus on fixing with fixing what went wrong. But, you know, at that same point, I think that goes to show how much momentum played in this game. You know, like you mentioned, maybe they don't take that triple option offense if they are losing this game. And, you know, I think that's something that, you know, we got to give Kansas a lot of credit for, actually. You know, they, they not only took advantage of, you know, those mistakes by BYU, but then they tried to emphasize them more. They tried to carry that momentum with them. Instead of just getting super conservative, they tried to attack us and they, 
you know, they were doing those running plays, but they were running at us hard. They weren't trying to do it to just run out the clock, but, you know, they were really trying to play aggressive with us. And that's something I think we can learn from as, you know, BYU. We, I think we can sort of take that as an example. If we have a lead, if we have a momentum changing play, we got to emphasize it. We got to take advantage of it and try to hurt them even more rather than just getting too conservative because we have a lead. So I love that you brought that up. You know, it's momentum played a huge factor in this game. And I, I actually, I was not able to watch the game live. Um, you know, I was very lucky because I got to watch my wonderful wife in a production that she was in. And I always feel lucky to get to watch her and support her in that stuff. But it just happened to be at the exact same time of the game. So I watched the game after it had all played. Um, so I just watched it recorded. I was able to skip through the commercials and kind of skim through it a little bit faster. And, you know, I feel like watching it at a much faster pace kind of painted a different picture for me than I think a lot of people are, you know, seeing. During the game, it might have felt like we kind of had that intensity and then Kansas would steal it. But, you know, skipping through it and watching it fast, it felt like Kansas just had the intensity and the momentum the entirety of that game. Even when we were winning, we were up at half, 17 to 14, it still did not feel like we had much momentum. We were kind of playing not to lose rather than trying to play to win by a lot. And that's kind of, I think, the approach and the mindset shift that we need here in Big 12 play is kind of instead of just playing not to lose, we got to play to win by as much as we possibly can. Yeah, that's interesting, that perspective of watching the game back kind of at a faster pace, because going into halftime, I actually texted some friends and I said, you know, I'm I'm pretty confident in this game because, like I said, the defense had only given up seven points. The offense was starting to get into a rhythm. We gave up that first the fumble return for a touchdown. But after that, the offense had two great touchdown drives and the field goal right before half. It felt like we were outscoring them 17 to seven and we're getting the ball at half. I was very confident in how the game was going to go. And. Then immediately we throw that pick six. And like you said, that momentum that Kansas, you kind of felt that Kansas had that I didn't recognize, that played a, a factor right away. And it immediately shifted for them the second the second half started. Now, talking about, you know, some more positives here. Um, I want to talk about our players of the game. We had some guys that played great. And so I'm going to share kind of my players of the game. And then, Chris, I'll have you share yours if they're different than mine. Um, on the offensive side of the ball, you know, I got to give it to Darius Lassiter. He had a great game. He wasn't our leading receiver. That was Chase Roberts, but Chase only had five more yards than him. But Darius had eight catches for 84 yards and a touchdown. And the reason I'm giving it to him is he's kind of stepping out as that receiver that's kind of the most consistent, that's our go-to guy, at least as of late it feels like that. But I also feel like he deserves major props because he scored against his brother's team, his dad's former team. This game meant a lot to him. And so I'm sure it was a special moment to not only have so many yards, but also score against his brother's defense. But again, you know, he's showing he can be that consistent option for us alongside Chase Roberts and Isaac Rex. And that's kind of what we've been looking for so far this season is you know those receivers to start to separate themselves a little bit more to start being those playmakers and I think Darius kind of showed that he can be that playmaker and then also just as a side note I think you know Keelan Marion also is showing why we wanted him in the first place he had only two catches for 47 yards but one of those was a long 37 yard catch he's showing that he can be a deep threat for us and so I hope we keep using that in the future 
But, you know, I got to give that player of the game to Darius. And then on the defensive side of the ball, this was a very easy choice for me. It's got to go to Ben Bywater. Ben on the day had 10 tackles, one sack, one and a half tackles for loss, one pass deflection, and he was playing fantastic. He was all over the place. You know, I predicted that he would be our defensive player of the game. And, you know, I kind of had different reasoning than to why he really was. I thought it was going to be more because of him getting a lot more sacks. But he was doing great at making those open field tackles, making those plays when we needed them. And, you know, he did get hurt. And he's one of those guys that we really hope gets healthy soon because we need him on our defense. Yeah, and my defensive player of the game, the exact same situation. It was Ben Bywater far and away was the best player on the defense. All around great game by him. And we do wish him the best recovery there. Uh, offense, I did want to give a shout out. I liked Isaac Rex a lot. I thought our first two touchdown drives in the first half when we were feeding him and he was the focal point of that offense. We were moving down the field. We were getting yards, big fourth down catch, just kind of the go-to guy in that first half. And then the defense started game planning around him that opened up other stuff. So I wanted to shout Isaac Rex out, just say that the offense was working a lot better because of his impact. Absolutely. I think it's very clear that our offense finds success when it goes through him. Like you said, it shifts that focus to him a little bit more, and that's when we get guys like Darius and Chase a lot more opened up. So I, I think that's also a very well-deserved one. You know, looking at the stat line, Isaac had seven catches for 76 yards, and that averages out to about 10.9 yards per catch, which, you know, his average on the day was great. That 10 yards per catch is a great average to have. But also on the season, he's up at like, I think last I saw was around 18, 19 yards. That is a great average to be having on the season. So, you know, I think Isaac Rex has kind of stepped out as, you know, our biggest weapon on this offense. And it's great to see he deserves that, especially after his terrible injury he had and his recovery that he went through not being 100% healthy last year. We're seeing this year exactly what a 100% healthy Isaac Rex can do. So, you know, I'm thrilled for him. I love seeing that. Now, I want to hear from you, Chris. We've talked a lot about the bad things. We've talked a lot about the good things. I want to hear your main takeaway. After this week four loss to Kansas, what are the big things that you're just taking away from it as we move on here to week five? Yeah, I think my overarching takeaway is that it's right in front of us. It's still right in front of us. This is our first loss. We're three and one, and it happened on the backs of a couple defensive touchdowns and miscues that can be fixed there. I think we still have a lot to go in this season. I think the rush game, Kalani Sataki said he, he was confident that we could get that figured out. I desperately hope he's right because we're going to need that, but... I do think this season is still right in front of us and that there's a lot of football ahead, like I said before, and that this team could easily get seven, eight wins and surprise some people in Big 12 play. So I think we just need to get everything all on the same page and play a complete game, and we are a great team. Absolutely, I do agree. It feels like it's just right there for us. A lot of fans are disappointed that we lost to, you know, I've seen people say a team like Kansas. I think Kansas is a lot better of a team than people give them credit for you know, to use the terms of the college football playoff committee. I feel like Kansas could very well be one of those quality losses. No losses are good losses, but I do think Kansas really is a better team than people give them credit for. Curious to see how they do this week against Texas, but they were a great team. My big takeaway, so, sort of piggybacking off of what you said there, 
was that I think we need that change for our offensive line or the run game in general soon. You know, last season, the big change we were needing was in the defense. And because we waited so long to make those changes, it ended up hurting us. We were barely fighting for bowl eligibility last season with a very talented team. And so that one of my takeaways is just that I think we need to make some sort of switch here quick. Now, I'm not saying that we need to make a coaching change necessarily. I'm not saying we need to make all these drastic changes. But, you know, I think we need to take away from this game that we can't sustainably rely only on our passing offense and that there needs to be some type of change with this run game soon. As you mentioned, though, Kalani said those changes are going to come and he has a good plan for it coming up this week. I think we're going to find out very quickly if that's just lip service or if this is something that actually is going to be fixed. So that's my takeaway. I think we do need that change, whether it happens or not. We are yet to see. I am really hoping that we do see it, though, because we do have a very talented back in LJ Martin. We have a talented back in Deion Smith. And when he's healthy, we'll have Aiden Robbins, too. All three of those guys are great running backs. And I'd hate to see their talent wasted this season. I want them to be more involved. Also bringing up a point that a lot of people talk about after a loss for any team is should we panic? You know, we talked about this after the Sam Houston game. Should we panic with this offense or this team in general? And, you know, I think there are some parts that we are rightfully able to panic about, you know, with our rushing offense. It's week four and we still can't get that going. So, yes, that's worth panicking over. But losing to Kansas specifically, I don't think that necessarily is worth panicking over. You know, injuries, yeah, we can panic over that. But our passing game, no, I don't think so. So there are parts that we are okay to panic over, I think. But it's also still a long season ahead of us for us to get these things fixed. So if we get them fixed fast, then I think that panic will go away very quickly. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There's We keep saying it. There's a lot of football left to play. This team has the bones of a good team. You just need to get the whole team together, be able to play a complete team game, and we should be okay. But I just remember at the start of the season, the expectations were bull eligible. At 3-1, and we're in a great spot to keep doing that, and anything else is just a bonus on top. Well, with that all said, let's go ahead and move on past this week. You know, it was a tough loss. We have a lot to learn from it, and we just got to move on to the next one. So this week, we have our very first Big 12 home game. We play at home. It's a Friday night, 8.15 p.m. kickoff. We are on ESPN, and we are playing against the Cincinnati Bearcats. We are wearing our Royal Rush uniforms, meaning the Royal Helmet, Royal Jersey, Royal Pants, and a Royal Face Mask. And it's going to look great because Cincinnati is hitting us with their all-whites. So it's going to be a great uniform matchup. It's going to be a fun atmosphere. And I also want to call out that, you know, this is worth calling out, I think. We're going to see a little bit different of a design on our field. Our end zones are going to be filled in with royal blue as well. So that's going to be super cool to see. Now, typically when we do our previews so far, we've kind of talked about who is the opponent. And then we talk about who is this BYU team. But I want to just do this week a little bit differently and just kick right off with who is week five. BYU. Now, I want to kick off with this because there were quite a few injuries that took place in that game last week against Kansas. And I want to talk a little bit about some of those. You know, we've been told Ben Bywater is kind of day to day right now. They're not 100% sure where he'll be. 
They're still waiting to hear back on some of his MRI results. So we're hoping for the best for him. I'm not planning on him playing at all this week, though. Even if the MRI results come back that he's good, it's kind of too close to game time for me to say for certain that he would be playing even if they are good. And that is if they are good, which we don't even know that. So, you know, of course, don't plan on Ben Bywater playing this one. Um, Cody Epps is day-to-day as well. He has that hamstring injury that's kind of been lingering here. We saw him in Arkansas for a few plays, and we did not see him at all against Kansas. So no word on him playing for sure yet or not against Cincinnati. But outside of that, the nice thing is we have heard that there were no season-ending injuries from that game. You know, Kingsley went out of the game hurt. We've heard that he is fine and should be good to go. Just to get those injuries out of the way, you know, there is still a little bit of unknown of who is going to be healthy enough for this week. But luckily, there are no season-ending injuries that we know of yet. Also, yeah, getting into week five BYU, uh, the 8.15 p.m. kickoff. I am actually a huge fan of these. I know that some fans don't like them a lot, but I do love it, especially on a Friday night. People are going to get done with work. They're going to come to the game. BYU just announced that the game is sold out, so we should have 63-plus thousand fans all going there. I think it's honestly going to be pretty comparable to that 2021 Utah and Arizona State games. Lavelle Edwards Stadium was popping. It was rocking. We caused a bunch of false starts. We absolutely had an impact on the game. I think for the first Big 12 home game that this stadium is going to be insane. Cincinnati was talking a little bit earlier. I saw a player talking about how he thinks Nippert Stadium is better than Lavelle Edwards Stadium. Fans can take that however they want, but I know I'm going to be there cheering all night long, trying to make that as false as possible. I think the atmosphere is going to play a big deal into it, and I think BYU is going to come out. I think they're going to come out hot. They're going to be mad about how the Kansas game went. They're going to want to prove a lot of people wrong. I think BYU is going to come out hitting, and they're going to come out fast, and I'm excited for it. Absolutely, I agree. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this with, you know, talking about last week's matchup where it felt like at the start of each half, Kansas came out hitting us hard. I want that same thing for week five BYU. I want us to use that energy from the crowd. Like you said, I think we're going to have a huge role in this. I'm a Seahawks fan, actually, and watching this past Seahawks game. So the Seahawks fans, you know, the 12th man that they are called, they caused eight false starts against the Panthers. And it really made me think of that, you know, Arizona State matchup specifically. And even the matchup we had against Baylor, it happened to Baylor last season. And so I really hope that we get that same crowd energy this week. And we should because it is that opening Big 12 home game for us. I also want to visit what you mentioned about that Cincinnati player talking about their stadium and crowd. This player specifically is actually a transfer from Utah State who said Cincinnati stadium and crowd is better than BYU stadium and crowd. And I want us fans to take this personally. I know it's such a crazy thing to say. I know, of course, he's going to say that he plays for Cincinnati. He's not going to admit that BYU has a better crowd, especially after coming from Utah State. But I want us to take that personally and use that to our advantage. I want us to really prove that he is wrong there. So as you said, you know, we should really try to go out there and prove him wrong. And, you know, I love that you brought that up. 
Yeah, and football is all about taking things personally. Tom Brady just barely this week was talking about how he found anything he could that the other person said or they looked at him weird, and he took it personally so that when he went out there, he just wanted nothing more than to beat the other team. So little things like that, like a player saying that their own home stadium is better than ours, of course he's going to say that, but you're going to take it personally and you're going to try and prove him wrong because that's what football is. I love that. So it should be a great environment. Really looking forward to it. Now let's talk a little bit about who this Cincinnati team is. Cincinnati is 2-2 two and two on the season with wins over East Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky and Pitt. They lost their last two games against Miami, Ohio and Oklahoma. And, you know, the first thing that I want to point out is that they're kind of similar to BYU just in the aspect that they have quite a few transfers coming in after a coaching change. Now, it's, you know, BYU's coaching change wasn't as drastic. You know, Cincinnati lost their head coach who took the job at Wisconsin and they filled in with their new coach. So they had a lot of transfers because of that. But they're still they're still a pretty good team, even with a loss to Miami, Ohio. They also hung a little bit with Oklahoma last week. So let's go into a little bit more depth with this Cincinnati team and what BYU fans can expect to see from them. Yeah, so a big thing that I've noticed about Cincinnati is they have a very balanced rush and passing attack. They will throw for right around 30 passes a game, and they will rush from anywhere from 30 to 50 times per game. They had a rushing game where they got 298 yards on the season, another one with 249 and they're going to try and establish that run game. BYU has shown that they might be a little bit weak in that department. So the first step to stopping Cincinnati is going to come with starting that rushing game because they love to ride on that. In addition, quarterback Emory Jones is a big part of that, especially in their game against Miami, Ohio. Him and running back Ryan Montgomery each rushed for 113 yards. So it's going to be a challenge keeping him contained there. And it's something that we saw against Kansas a little bit in that second half. They're going to run with the quarterback. They're going to run with the running back. How can we stop that is the question. Absolutely. And talking a little bit more about their quarterback, he, I think, is familiar to a lot of people who follow college football outside of BYU. You know, he played for Florida. He played for Arizona State, and now he's transferred over into Cincinnati. He is a great athlete. He's a great player. He's 62% on his passes on the year, but he has seven touchdowns and five interceptions Two of those interceptions were against Oklahoma, and five of those touchdowns were against Eastern Kentucky. So, you know, he has decent stats, but there are some little differences in his stats that I do feel a little bit better looking at. You know, as good of an athlete and a player as he is, he does also make some hard decisions sometimes. He makes some questionable decisions. He turns the ball over and doesn't take care of it as much. So, you know, you mentioned a big part of this is going to be stopping the run. I think also a big part of this is sort of forcing those mistakes from him as much as possible. Oklahoma did it, and it worked. They got two interceptions. Eastern Kentucky did not at all, and he scored five touchdowns on them. So we need to be able to force those mistakes from him. And then their running back, Corey Kiner, he has 328 yards on the season. And in their wins, he has had good games. So a big part of their offense and their success does come from him as well. And then one other player on the offense that I think we are going to hear talked about a lot in this game that is going to make some noise for Cincinnati is their receiver, Xavier Henderson. He is a transfer from Florida. He already has 340 yards and a touchdown this season. And, you know, on the stat sheet, at least, he 
pops out as kind of Jones's favorite receiver. He has 10 more receptions on the season than the second leading receiver and almost 150 more yards than that second leading receiver. So he's a big player for them. He is very fast. He can get open very easily. He's just a playmaker. So I expect him to really make some noise for Cincinnati. Yeah, that's going to be one of the first really big challenges with a wide receiver one type guy for our secondary. They've been great so far, but I I do want to see how they respond to a guy like Xavier Henderson. Absolutely. And then on the defensive side of the ball, they also have their DB Taj Ward. He has 23 tackles on the season and two forced fumbles. He's very, you know, a hard hitting defensive back. He's kind of one of their defensive leaders. So I also expect him to be very involved, especially where we have such a pass-heavy offense that we need to rely on, at least so far this season. Now, one thing that I also want to point out about the Cincinnati team, though, is something that actually worked against them that kind of applies to BYU here a little bit. So I was watching, actually, today, just a cut-down highlight video of their matchup last week against Oklahoma, and more so to see what Oklahoma did to have it one be a close game and two also where they found success so first of all i remember you know following and watching that game live it felt like oklahoma was allowing cincinnati to stay with them more than cincinnati was really playing good to stay with them if that makes sense you know in my mind i kind of compare it to how arkansas played against us where just oklahoma kept making a lot of mistakes they were dropping these you know wide open passes on a third and long. They had a couple of bad punts. They had some turn they had a specific fumble in the red zone actually that kept them from scoring. So there are a lot of mistakes that kept Cincinnati in it. So I do think that game shows a little bit more about maybe Oklahoma than Cincinnati. With that said though, you know one thing that Oklahoma did really well that worked against the Cincinnati offense or defense was Their offense involved a lot of quick outside passes to the sideline, which is actually something that we are seeing quite a bit from BYU. I mean, we use Isaac down the middle quite a lot, but we're also seeing some, you know, quick outside passes to the running back or some receiver screens. We've even seen tight end string screens with Isaac. And this works because Cincinnati has played kind of a soft coverage lately. They're kind of playing that drop-back coverage, almost like bend but don't break a little bit. Yeah, and with them playing off, it'll help a lot to get guys into space. I want to see a lot more kind of the wide receiver screens. Or BYU loves throwing the ball behind the line of scrimmage and letting wide receivers block before their routes really go through. A lot of people think it's offensive pass interference, but we run it in such a specific way that it works really well especially when you have guys like Keanu Hill, Keelan Marion on the outside. They have been excellent blockers out on the perimeter there. They free up a lot of space. We saw it against SUU a couple times. Darius Lasseter had his 50-yard screen pass go for a touchdown because of perimeter blocking. I do think that a key to this game is going to be kind of extending the run game with those screen passes and letting the playmakers, the receivers, get the ball in space and kind of figure out where to go from there to get a lot of yards after the catch. Yeah, and, you know, I think hopefully if we succeed with that, that's also going to really allow us to take some deep shots as well. You know, I hope that if we're able to take advantage of this like Oklahoma was, not only will we allow our best playmakers to make those plays, but then it's going to open it up a lot more for those deep passes to Isaac Rex, to Chase Roberts, or Darius Lassiter. That comes from getting them to close in and play more tight. 
which, you know, with our run game not working as much, it can, you know, quickly come from those quick outside passes. But also, as you mentioned, we got to get that run game going, and that's going to help it out even more so. Now, let's go ahead and talk about kind of the keys to the game, what we really need to beat Cincinnati. And I want to go ahead and start this off actually with something you were talking about before with the intensity. And this is something that we say almost every week. But, you know, we bring it up because we are starting to see it kind of have lower intensity for BYU lately. We're not having as much intensity as I would like. And that's going to be a big key to this game. You know, Oklahoma didn't have as much intensity in this game. And that's why Cincinnati hung with them for the majority of that game. So I think, you know, we got to go out there, take advantage of the hype, the energy we have from the crowd, and just start out super intense, start out smacking them in the mouth. You know, we said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it probably, in Big 12 play, we got to start out our game strong. We saw what happens when we don't. We started each half with a turnover that was returned for a touchdown. We need the opposite of that. We need to go out of the, go out of the gate getting a defensive stop, go out of the gate scoring on our first drive, have some big game-changing plays right off the bat, and not let Cincinnati feel like they can hang with us. You know, they're a good team, but we have the skill that we should be able to beat them. So I want us, I want to see us come out with that intensity to do so. Yeah, and that's exactly what Miami, Ohio did. Their very first offensive play was a 79-yard touchdown pass, just a deep ball down the field, about 50 air yards. The receiver caught it, finished the rest of the way there. But yeah, hitting them quick, coming out hot. BYU's come out slow in the last few games. It's not going to work if we keep doing that. And I did want to point out, Cincinnati's defense stops the run really well. If BYU attempts to lean into the run game as much as possible and trying to get it going, we are going to lose this game. We need the run game to be a supplemental and to be able to be used at the right times. But if we throw an incompletion on first and 10 and we're attempting to run the ball up the middle on second and 10, we're almost guaranteeing ourselves to stay in third and long. So I would love to see the passing game open up the running game rather than the other way around because the run game isn't going to do enough to open the pass game against this good Cincinnati defense. Their pass game is the weaker part, so we do need to be able to expose that in order to have even a, a prayer at getting a run game going this week. Absolutely. And if there is a, any game on our schedule for us to be able to lean heavily into our passing offense, setting up the rest of it, it's going to be this game. You know, as you mentioned, their their defense has allowed decent pass yards in all of their losses. I mean, they allow it in all of their games, but it kind of stands out in their losses specifically. And they are much better at stopping that run. So we need to really take advantage of that. And I agree, a lot of that comes from our play calling there. We got to, you know, instead of just playing a little bit more conservative and hope that we get a solid three, four yard gain on second and 10, why not try to get that same gain on a passing play? So we, we got to take advantage of that weakness there on that defense. And then just on our defensive side of the ball, you know, as I mentioned before, we need to force those bad throws and trust our secondary to really make a play. You know, Jones makes a lot of mistakes already so far this season he has at least. So we need to, you know, make that continue here. We also need to get them into third and longs because on the season, there are only around 30, 43%, excuse me, on third down efficiency. And a big part of that is because they get into situations where they're at third and long and they struggled converting. So we got to keep them from getting third and shorts. We got to get them to a third and long 
And I think our defense will be able to step up and make plays to keep them from converting on those third downs. So that's a big key to me on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, and we saw that in the Arkansas game. One of the big stories of that game was that Arkansas was very, very poor on third downs. And that gave us the ball back a lot of the time. And being able to force Cincinnati into those same third and longs will help our defense out a lot. In addition, like I was saying before, containing the run and containing the quarterback. Once once Kansas started running with the quarterback, that's when our defense started to fall apart. And that's going to be a big game plan of Cincinnati this week. Because I think they're going to come out and they're going to try and do that same thing. Because they saw that it worked in the second half last week. Do we have an answer is the question. And that is my key to the game there is contain the quarterback. So going, going into our predictions for this game, we're going to do the same approach every week. We're going to have a score prediction, players of the game on both sides of the ball, and a hot take. So I'll go ahead and get us kicked off here. My prediction for the final score, I actually am going to change it up here a little bit last second. I think BYU wins this one a little bit more handedly than most people would guess. I hope we make a bounce back game from this and take advantage of the home field advantage that we do have. And I think we win this game 28 to 14. I think, you know, their past weeks have shown that Cincinnati can struggle at times on offense, getting drives going and getting points. And I want us to make sure that we aren't that outlier, that we keep that same trend going here and keep them under 21 points. So my prediction is that we are able to do it. We have the playmakers to do it. So that's my final score prediction. Offensive player of the game, I'm going to predict that it's actually Keaton Slovis. We're going to rely a lot on that passing game, and we're going to really try to spread the ball out as well. And so I think that he's going to have a great game. He's going to be very efficient, avoid turnovers. So I think he's going to be our offensive player of the game. I think our defensive player of the game is going to actually be Jacob Robinson. As I said before, they're, the Cincinnati quarterback makes those mistakes. He has you know, all those interceptions so far this season. I think this is a great opportunity for Jacob to show again why he's one of our best defenders on this team. I think you know he's going to have at least one turnover here. This is the perfect opportunity for it. So I expect him to step up and be our player of the game there. And then for my hot take, I'm actually predicting that Isaac Rex is going to have three of our touchdowns. I think Isaac is going to have three receiving touchdowns. I believe that would break the record, actually, for touchdowns by a tight end in BYU history. Is that the record there? Am I thinking this right? I'm not 100% sure on that. I know three touchdowns would be a ton, though. Yeah, I think I think he's tied right now for the record of touchdown catches by a tight end in BYU history. So I expect him to beat that record. If we're wrong, let us know if that's not the record. But either way, I am, my hot take is that he's going to have three touchdowns on the day. I am just kind of curious for you. I got a question. If Isaac Rex scores three touchdowns, how is he not your player of the game? That, that's why it's a hot take. <laughs> Maybe he would be player of the game. I don't know. That's a good point. Well, going in from that, my player of the game was going to be Isaac Rex, so I'm going to stick with that there. I do think he gets on the board this game, scores one of our touchdowns at least, and he's going to be a big factor in the passing game. Um, my prediction for the final score, I've got BYU winning this one 31-23. One possession game, just barely keep it eight points, but I do like that there. Uh, my defensive player of the game is going to be Max Tooley. I think if we don't have Ben Bywater, Max Tooley is going to step up into that role. He's going to play a big factor in leading this defense and kind of keeping them together even through some injuries there. So I think he's going to be a big part in both the passing and the rushing game. 
And then my hot take is that I will I think the BYU's defense is going to get three or more turnovers this week. We didn't have any against Kansas, and I think that changes here. I think they're going to come out with a fire. I think they're going to force Emory Jones into some bad situations, and I think we're going to get one fumble and two interceptions is what I'll call it. Now let's go ahead and flip it over into our new segment that we started last week for What Would You Do? So in this segment, we are going to take three plays that we saw from the last week of college football, or even we're going to expand it to professional football this week. And we're going to talk about the play call that was called. We're going to choose one to defend the call. We're going to choose one to switch it up. If we were to be the coach there, what would we change about the play call? And then we're going to have one where we kind of talk about both sides of the argument of, you know, if it was the right call or if it was something that would have, you know, should be changed. So, Chris, I'm going to have you actually explain what plays we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. So the first play we have comes straight from our BYU game. It was the start of the second half. We had just thrown the pick six. The score is 21 to 17. BYU's got the ball on third and goal on the 23-yard line. We just got sacked, and we're trying to get to the line. Clock's running down to zero. We take a timeout to avoid the delay of game on third and 23. The debate there is whether or not that's worth it, whether you keep your timeout or you just try and play it out from third and 28. The second play I've got here, the Las Vegas Raiders had a game this weekend where they were down by eight points with two minutes and 44 seconds left. They're on the opponent's eight yard line on a fourth and four. They decided to kick a field goal and attempt to get a stop on defense, get the ball back and score to try and win it rather than going for it on the fourth down to see if they could score and then tie it with a two point conversion. And then the final one, the Packers were playing the Saints. They were down 17 to three and they scored a touchdown. If Had they kicked the PAT, it would have made it a seven-point game, but they decided to go for two, ended up getting it, scored again, and won the game by one point. So would you have gone for two on the first touchdown, or would you have just kicked the field goal to make it a seven-point game? Those are our three scenarios for you here today. Fantastic. Now, beforehand, before we record this, Chris and I both talk about which one we are going to put in each bucket. So now we're going to explain a little bit about our decisions here so starting off starting us out here chris which one did we put the byu timeout in yeah so we're actually going to defend the byu timeout originally i did not love the call i'll be honest watching it live i was a little bit mad that we decided to take a timeout on third and 23 because the extra five yards at that point don't matter but given the other two situations here, I do like defending this one, and there is a little bit of a good reasoning here. Uh, we just got sacked. We had a negative 14-yard play. Had we taken five yards after that, the ball would have been at the 28-yard line. And say you take another negative play or just an incompletion there, you're suddenly looking at a 40-plus, 50-plus yard field goal in a four-point game where you really need the points. And so that's kind of why I'm okay with taking the time out there. And I just kind of want to hear what you think. Would you have taken the timeout at the start of the second half? You want to keep your timeouts? I don't know. What would you have done there? Yeah, I, I kind of had the same initial reaction, but I do agree that I think it's, you know, just, you know, fine taking that timeout there, especially where we have a kicker that is, you know, he has experience playing in the kicker position before, but he's still new to the team. He hasn't done a ton this season and so you know making it harder for him 
isn't, I think, the best way to go about this. I do agree that, you know, it's much better to have a 30-something yarder than a 40, you know, almost 50-something yarder. And so I, I do agree there. I think, you know, in, in hindsight, it is smart to take that, you know, time out there and just get the easier points, especially in a game where we're already behind and we desperately need those points. And then, you know, if we use that timeout, get that kick that brings it to 21 to 20, you know, Kansas did score immediately after that, but it's still a one possession game at 28 to 20. And it's because we had that easier field goal. So in hindsight, I think it is easy to defend this one. But in, of course, in the moment, that is a very hard call. You know, if I were a coach, I don't know if I make that call. I almost try to keep that timeout there because, you know, it's, that's going to be valuable in the fourth quarter having those timeouts. But I think in hindsight, I do think that was the correct call there. Now, moving on to the Raiders going for a field goal rather than trying to go for it on fourth and goal. Chris, pretty clear what one we put this in, but talk me through this one a little bit. Yeah, this decision is terrible. I mean, I, I get having faith in your defense, but in an eight-point game, when you are inside the 10-yard line on fourth and four, if you really don't think you can get four yards or even more to get a first down there, I don't even know how you ended up being in a situation where you could tie the game. So I think you absolutely have to go for that there. You have to give your team a chance to try and tie the game up because Las Vegas didn't even get the ball back. They didn't get the stop on defense. The Steelers ended up kneeing out the game. They didn't even get a chance once they kicked the field goal. So I think if you got that chance, you absolutely have to at least try. Yeah, and and I mean, again, I am on the same page with you on this one. I think that was a terrible coaching decision there. Um, it's kind of going viral because of that. And I think they even had gone for it on a fourth and goal like previously in the game. I'm not 100% sure. I didn't watch this one all entirely live, but I think I've read somewhere that they had already, you know, tried it before. So actually in, in the beginning of the fourth quarter even, they had a fourth and five at the Steelers 22, and they went for it there and they didn't get it. And so where my confusion is, is if you're going for it, with you know 13 minutes left in the game why wouldn't you try it again with you know two minutes left in the game when it's a one possession game you know if you score here you can tie it up rather than lose this game so you know i i do agree there that it's not not the smartest play i i struggle with that one yeah like that that's seriously such a stupid thing to do there yeah i'm actually looking at the win probability right now on the fourth and four play, the Steelers had a 73% chance of winning the game. And after the Raiders kicked the field goal, it jumped up to 83%. So by kicking the field goal, the Steelers' chance of in winning increased by 10%, which is not something you want to do as the offense. Awesome. Now moving on to the last play that we have here. And it was the Packers, as you mentioned, going for that two-point conversion pretty early on they were down 17 to 3 they scored a touchdown and went for two points to make it 17 to 11 rather than 17 to 10 and the argument here is you know do we take the PAT easier points here and still have it be a 7 point game or do we go for the two point conversion here and make it a 6 point game and you know to me where i'm not as much of you know, an analytics guy, I don't understand football as much as Chris does. 
you know, my first initial thought was watching this game. Why would you go for that two points? Just take the easier PAT. But Chris, you had a little bit different of an explanation for it. So why don't you walk us through, you know, what your thoughts are with this specific play, what you think of that play call, walk us through it a little bit. Yeah, so I'm actually a huge fan of the going for two when you're down 14 play. I've I've known about it for a few years. It was used a, li- a couple of years ago. It's still kind of gaining traction a little bit. But the idea here is when you're down 14, if you score a touchdown, you kick the PAT, you're still down seven. If you go for two, however, if you get it, you make it a six-point game, and suddenly another touchdown with a PAT just wins the game for you straight up. And so if you don't get it, on the other hand, you're down eight but you still have another chance at a two-point conversion. So if you're able to convert on 50% of your two-point conversions, you're still able to tie the game. But if you're able to make it the first time, you give yourself a much higher chance of winning. And so I'm always a huge fan of fourth quarter situations. If you're down 14 and score, I will always advocate for going for two there. And this kind of revisits a little bit of our one that we debated last week with Kansas or Colorado State going for two. But, you know, to me, the other side of this, I also would totally be on board with going for just the one PAT there. You know, if you miss that point conversion, you instead of being down, you know, 17 to 10 or 17 to 11, if you get it, you're down 17 to 9 and you still need that eight points. And, you know, to me, if you go for it there for that two point conversion and you don't get it, then you have to go score a touchdown again and somehow get a two-point conversion when you couldn't get it before. So, you know, I do completely understand the other side of this of just, you know, the thought of why wouldn't you just take the PAT there, make it a seven-point game, and then you can score a touchdown to tie it. But also on the point that you brought up, that's kind of conservative. You know, you increase your odds to win if you get that two-point conversion and even if you don't. If you are able to score a touchdown again, you can solve another shot at that two-point conversion. So, you know, after you explaining this a little bit more to me, you know, I am kind of more on board with it. But again, I totally do understand the other side of this argument of just taking the easier PAT there, trusting in your kicker. But, you know, if you have a two-point conversion play that you know is surefire, you know you can get points from and it works, you know, I am on board with using it there and getting those points. You know, and that was the case with the Packers. They went from being down 17 to 3 to 17 to 11. You know, they forced a three and out immediately after. And then on that next drive, they go down and score a touchdown and they are up 18 to 17. The Saints then miss a field goal. And because of that, the Packers win the game. So, you know, in hindsight, again, it's one of those that is easy to say, oh, this is a great thing. Maybe if they don't get it and they lose because of it, you know, a lot of people have a different approach. But I do agree that it's, you know, sometimes smart to have that more aggressive approach to really just grab a hold of the game as much as you possibly can. And when you're down, that's the best way to do it, to get those extra points and put yourself in a position to win. So, you know, I I, I get both sides of this. You know, if I were a coach myself, I'd probably side with taking that PAT because I feel like, you know, in a comeback, you need those points where you can get them. But I also absolutely get going for two there. Yeah, and if I'm a coach, I'm drawing up the most diabolical two-point conversion play I can, just running the craziest thing that I know is going to work. Because if I'm if I'm a coach, I'm planning for that, and I've got my two or three two-point conversion plays. So just in case my first crazy play doesn't go good, the second one's going to work. 
but I definitely understand if you're not as confident in your two point conversions, that makes sense to not go for it. But I think three yards is easy enough to get for most people, but that's just me. But let's, let's go ahead and, you know, keep, keep with this, you know, outside of BYU a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, the matchups we're excited. Just moving on here. The matchups we're excited for week five college football outside of the BYU matchup. And there are a few ones that, a few games that stand out to me most on the schedule for this week. So I want to talk through a couple of these. First of all, of course, you know, playing alongside us on Friday night is Utah at Oregon State. I'm, I'm big enough of a person to admit that I follow Utah and I'm, I do concern myself with, you know, how they are playing. A lot of people on rivalry Twitter or just in the rivalry in general always make fun of the other team for following their team. I think that's a totally regular thing to do in a rivalry. So, of course, I'm going to be, you know, following that one as much as I can before the BYU game starts. But that's going to be a big matchup for the Pac-12. You know, Utah is undefeated so far, but they have some injuries. They still don't have Cam Rising. So, you know, I do kind of expect Oregon State to make a great game out of this. Oregon State's been rolling. They do have their one loss to Washington State last week, but it was only by three points. And Washington State is a great team as well. So it's another great Pac-12 ranked matchup. I'm looking forward to that one. Should be a good one. And then, you know, moving on to Saturday, we actually have a matchup that I think is going overlooked a little bit. And it's number 22, Florida at Kentucky. Now, Kentucky is unranked, but they are undefeated. Florida's one loss on the season is to Utah, but they have a big win over a ranked, a top 10, actually, LSU team. So this should be a good matchup. And my actually prediction for that one is that Kentucky comes out with a win. It's at Kentucky. Kentucky is rolling. And Florida has shown some weaknesses. So I think Kentucky is going to grab that win on Saturday. Yeah, my favorite matchup this week is actually coming from the ACC. I like 11 Notre Dame at 17 Duke. I think Duke's already got a really fun win over Clemson there, and Notre Dame's coming off the loss to Ohio State on only having 10 men on the field for a goal line situation, which is certainly a strategy. But I, I like Duke. Duke's 4-0, and it would be really fun if they were able to get a win over both Clemson and Notre Dame this early in the season and start 5-0. and So that's a matchup that I'm going to be keeping my eye on this week. One other one that I actually just am looking at here right now that I am going to make sure I personally watch myself is also going to be West Virginia at TCU. That's one that I think BYU fans might want to be on the lookout for just because those are two of our future opponents. We get TCU after our bye week, after our matchup against Cincinnati. So that should be a good matchup. Kind of get a good look into both of these teams in that Big 12 matchup. So that's one other that I do want to call out specifically for us BYU fans. If you want to get a glimpse at our opponents coming up, this is a great game to be watching because it's two of them playing against each other. But that is all we have for you today. This is kind of a longer episode. We try to keep them around an hour long so to make sure that you have plenty of time to listen to it all before kickoff. We are so excited for kickoff, though, on Friday against Cincinnati. One more reminder for you that it's the 8.15 p.m. kickoff at home. It's going to be a great one. Lavelle Edwards should be pumping. It should be a great game, great environment. Should be a great atmosphere. It's going to be a super fun game. You know, we're hoping for a great week for BYU. Should be a great week overall for college football. Chris, do you have anything you want to add before we wrap up? Go Cougs. Absolutely, go Cougs. Make sure you follow us on our socials at Coog Talk Podcast, and we'll see you all next week. 
This was the Cougar Talk Podcast. Thanks for listening.